0: Hi everyone, it's Liz Carey here, Sophia's girl boss, sidekick, and partner in crime. This week, Sophia's out on a secret girl boss mission. (laughs) So she asks that I introduce this week's episode of Girl Boss Radio. Each week on the show, Sophia interviews a different woman who's carved out a path for herself, tracing her from her first job to how she got to where she is today to extract solid advice for our listeners who are doing the same with their lives. To stay in touch with all things Girl Boss, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girlboss. You can sign up for our newsletter, Girl Boss Diary, by going to girlboss.com, and you can follow Sophia at Sophia with a pH. Am Arusso on Twitter and Instagram, and me at the Liz Carey, and I'm only on Instagram, but Sophia's kind of been pushing me to get onto Twitter, so maybe I'll show up there. This week's guest, who Sophia interviewed a few days ago, is Alyssa Mastromonaco, the COO of Vice and the former Deputy Chief of Staff to President Obama. What? Let's get to it.
1: Alyssa, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me. This is
1: super fun. So, I like to start every podcast with the same question, which is Alyssa, what was your first job? So, Not career
2: job, but like first job. Yeah. My first job was working at Kilmer's IGA, which was a grocery store in the center of the really small town I grew up in. And I was, I was a really good checker. Oh cool. And I really packed bags like a demon. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you did both? There was no like baggers and no, checkers? No, no. No. It was like a one stop. One stop. Job. And I was really like a beautiful mind about the whole thing. I'd that see seems... the boxes and the heavy things and I'd pull them first. I like really, I've always, no matter what I do, I always try to get the most out of it.
1: I tried bagging stuff once (laughs) for like a day, and then I think I didn't show up after that, but I still have my apron with my Whole Foods like badge, like you have a pin with your name on it. See, but you were fancy.
2: You were a Whole Foods. I guess. My (laughs) mom moved
1: moved me to Marin County when I was 17 because my parents split up. But what did you learn in your first job? Is there anything that you've learned that you've carried with you through your career?
2: Yeah. So here's an interesting thing is that I basically will not hire anyone who doesn't have customer service experience. Wow. Because when you, like, I think about it, I was 15 years old. I was dealing with all different kinds of people. And when we were actually in the White House at one point, we were talking about new policies around food stamps. And I got really engaged in the conversation, even though I'm not a policy wonk, because I actually, our grocery store had been the one that took food stamps in our area. And so when people were talking about what you accept, like what food stamps should cover and what they shouldn't, nobody had any real world idea of like how humiliating it is for a woman who's trying to feed her kids, be like, sorry, you can't have Sunny Delight, you know, Uh even though it has more vitamins than like Kool-Aid, but that was covered. So one, I took like perspective, I think, on the world generally and that not everything's black and white, but also just that, you know, How you approach people really says a lot about how you'll react in any sort of professional experience.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so you worked at a grocery store. I did. What did you do after that? So what happened between the grocery store and the White House?
2: So between the grocery store and the White House, I went to college. I had a ton of internships, including uh, for then Congressman Bernie Sanders, now senator and presidential candidate. Do you feel the burn? I feel the burn. It's hard. I mean, like, I'm with her. Uh But I also feel the burn because I think— You're going to have to make a decision. Well, I mean, America made it. And (laughs) so I just hope that we get to see him, like, have a great platform at the convention. But the thing that's so hard that I tried to explain to people is that Bernie gave me my first chance. You know, like so many other people I had applied to work for, and they were just like, yeah, come on in. And again, like the customer service, I answered the phones. I did like super, and this is what I always try to tell young women when I meet with them and give talks and stuff, is that I didn't just walk in there and answer the phone because they told me to answer the phone. I was like... Present. I, I mean, this is before the internet to recall. Mm-hmm. So I would get a phone call and then I would like look up in the newspapers to see what the problem was that this constituent was talking about. And I'd do like a little one pager for the caseworker. I mean, I was a little Tracy Flick election probably, but what are you going to do? And they were like, wow, she does a good job. And so then I got an internship on the campaign. So I would be in the congressional office during the day, the campaign at night. And then at the end of my internship that summer, I actually changed majors. I was a French major with a minor in Japanese, became a poli sci major. Amazing. Yeah. And then, um, (laughs) and then the next summer, they invited me to Washington, D.C., and I ran around Capitol Hill. Like, my job, my, it seemed like my job was. More than any of the other interns that I would take the legislation that Bernie was either co-sponsored, like getting co-sponsors for. And I would go to every single office and get the member's signature. It's like the thinnest I ever was. I was just like running, <laughs> literally running around Capitol Hill in the summer. And then I graduated college and I thought it was just a foregone conclusion that I would, of course, get a job on the Hill. And I didn't. I wrote letters and mailed them and followed up with phone calls because there was no email or internet and you know by like July of 98 when I graduated my dad was like let's talk about what you're going to do. There was because a little internet but like a little that. internet not like it was like
1: It was like a frontier. It was
2: it was, it was congressional offices were not utilizing uh, it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're so, still
1: figuring it out.
2: My dad was like I appreciate that you've really tried but it's time to get a job. And he told me this story about how when he was at NYU, he really wanted to work at IBM and that he hadn't gotten the offer, but he'd gotten all these other offers from insurance companies in Hartford. And he was going to have to get on the train to Hartford because that's where the job was. And I'm like, right, but you ended up working at IBM. Mm -hmm. And so I got on the the metaphorical train to Hartford and I became a uh, real estate investment trust paralegal in the World Trade Center. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: How long were you a paralegal?
2: So I was paralegal. And then this is where I lost my way. And Uh I was in New York in the financial district. And all of the kids around me were in like the training programs where like you graduate college and then you go to Chase Manhattan and you're 22 and you go through all the you train through all the different departments and then they see what you're good at. And I was like, you know what? I think this is my jam. I think I should do this. And so I got a job at Merrill Lynch thinking that I wanted to do that. And I was there for five days and I quit because I was like, what have I done? I'm like, I've lost my way. And so then I ended up having like a bunch of other random jobs to pay the rent in New York. And my girlfriend who I had met my first day as a paralegal, she was also – Paralegal, And we joke all the time because there were three of us sitting in this room on our first day. And Amy had gone to UPenn. I was like, oh, my God, she's so smart. And then Kara O'Leary had gone to the University of Rochester. But she's, and she was so pretty. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so much less than all these other people. But we ended up, Amy and I ended up being roommates oh, because nice. neither one of us had a place to live. She had her best friend and I had my best friend and all four of us moved in together because that is the story of New York. Uh-huh. And so she ended up leaving and going to Boston College Law School. I went to visit her. And I saw uh, Senator John Kerry give a speech and I'm like, the fuck am I doing? And so I wrote them this like Jerry Maguire mission statement letter. Uh (laughs) It's like, let me just be your intern. I don't even care. Like, I'll get another job. Like, just let me be an intern. And they interviewed me three times and they actually hired me as a staff assistant. And I Mm -hmm. moved to Boston. And I developed this really great relationship with John Kerry. Like I was just this total little doer in the office. I answered the phones. I helped the press office. I did clips, like press clips. I cut them out and photocopied them and stuff. And when the woman who was the director of scheduling for Senator Kerry went on her honeymoon, they're like, you should just do her job. And I was like, that's Really scary. It's a grown up who got married. To- I mean, she, I was like, what do you mean she was, I remember thinking she was so old. She was like 28. Um, and so she, they're like, you can do it. It'll be fine. And what had happened is it was during the Gore Bush and they had John Kerry do this thing called chasing Cheney, And so he, everywhere Dick Cheney was going, John Kerry would go right after him. And I had to like get him around the country. And it was just the coolest. I did a great job. And I started realizing that I was really good at, like I had a different way of seeing things and doing logistics. And so he'd get to like Ohio and I'd be like, I got Fred Smith's plane from FedEx and he's going to take you to Denver. Nice. And then so and it was just like boom, boom, boom. And I realized I was really good at thinking on my feet. And and because of that experience, I ended up with a really close relationship with John Kerry. And so he I wanted to move to D.C. And he offered me a job working for his political group. And I got an apartment and I was ready to move down to DC and 9 11 happened. So I had, I. In the building where you used to work. In the building where I used to work. And just like totally crazy. I'm like, what am I gonna, what am I gonna do? And so I had two apartments. I had to move down to D.C. because my rent was like $800 a month, which was so much money for someone who made $22,000 a year. Uh huh. And so I just moved down to D.C. and I ended up getting a job at a Republican lobbying group. Wow. And I was really good. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. What? It was crazy. <laughs> what kind of things were you lobbying for and if how did you feel I'm about it? I'm so them? embarrassed. So, Sophia, you're like the first person I'm ever talking to this about. Okay, but cool. But we actually lobbied. The, our enemies, the people that we lobbied against, were Mothers um, Against Drunk Driving <gasps> and, oh. uh, and oh. groups like – so like the First Lady has the Let's Move program. Mm-hmm. If Let's Move had started 15 years earlier, I would have been lobbying against it. We believed that this lobbying group that people deserve the choice, okay? People deserve choice. You and sh- if you yeah. want to have trans fat, you should have it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but Amazing. I was really good and – I realized I was losing my soul, and I decided to – I saw this, this like, thing in the newspaper for – Rick Boucher from Virginia's ninth District was looking for a press secretary. In the newspaper? Yeah, it was in the newspaper. Cool. And I applied for it, and I got it. And so the day I was going in to quit my job, they were like, oh, the head of the company, Rick, wants to see you anyway. And so I went in, and I was actually getting a bonus. And he's like, oh, you know, I just want to tell you, you got the highest bonus in the company because you did such a good job this year. And I'm like, oh well, God, that's man. awkward. Because I'm here to quit and you can keep the bonus. Like, I don't, this feels like shady to me. Like, uh-huh. you can. And he was like, no, you earned it. And so I got to keep my bonus and I went to my job and I became press secretary for Virginia's Fighting Ninth. And I did that for almost a year. And then John Kerry decided to run for president and he called me back. And that's how I ended up back with John Kerry in like December of 2002.
1: So I hear a lot of persuasiveness Mm -hmm. and a lot of thoroughness. And that just seems like something that came really naturally to you. What do you attribute
2: that to? So I think, and I feel like people whose parents give them a lot of running room when they're young, just learn how to really have sort of, I don't want to say sophisticated, I guess thorough is a better word, like a Mm. thorough thought process. And so, like, my parents never really checked my grades. You wow. know, they didn't tell me where I could or couldn't apply to school. I actually had to, you know, now, in the past couple of years, I've definitely had instances where some young person's parents have called me up and want to discuss the offer that we've made to their child. Oh God. and like you oh can God, just you right. Uh-huh. You can file that under nothing the Master Monaco's ever did. yeah, you no. Know, I was just and offer rescinded. Hundred. I don't want you working. No, for me, I'm sorry. I'm going to have Offer to do with rescinded. your mom the whole time. Yeah, hundred percent.
1: I just had someone negotiate from forty-eight thousand. I offered fifty-five. She wanted a hundred. Stop. And, and then you were and like, put actually, an attorney on the horn to have the conversation about it. Other level. Yeah. Right. Like she didn't want to talk about it herself. See, and, you make
2: under what? What? And that is, but that's my thing. Guys, is guys, they don't. Some think. of you are listening. I hope you're listening because we're judging you. <laughs> And then we talk to each other no, about We're helping you. you. We're helping you. We are because the truth. And at
1: some point we're all going to die and then you're going to have to deal with these problems. But for the time being. Right. Cause
2: they just populate, right? We they don't, don't go away. You know, and I'm a, you're young. I'm a millennial. Like you are a millennial. And I'm still baffled. It's for me, just like, so my parents were like, yeah, here, apply to college, do all the paperwork yourself. And so I feel like I take decisions really seriously. And I think I totally believe in like gut. Anytime I have like not listened to my gut. I have known that I made a mistake. Totally. I
1: say in in my book, where I have hesitated, I've failed. So let's get into the Obama era. Let's do it. So you were with John Kerry before his presidential campaign. Yep. That ended. Mm -hmm. And then how did you wind up working with President Obama?
2: All right. Well, during the... Kerry senator. campaign it was senator first. senator obama yes yeah so actually when he was state senator obama and he was running for senate a friend of mine robert gibbs hi gibbs hey, Gibby. um he <laughs> was working for him and when we lost i was helping to wrap up the Kerry campaign which is just like the darkest most depressing thing you, you like can lay do. everyone off you like lay everyone off and then for me it's like you get all the banners back and the placards Aww. back and you just like archive them and stuff and so one day i'm sitting in this like dank office and my AOL instant messenger pops up. And, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Robert Gibbs and he's like, how are you? He's Southern. He's like, how are you? And I could hear it through the I am. And I said, well, you know, unemployed. And he's like, well, Obama is hiring. Do you want to come in and, and interview? No. And I was like, what? I don't no, know. No. I'm like, brother really? Obama. I don't know. <laughs> and then I literally was talking to my parents about it. I'm like, you know what though? It's like, I just never want to do another run for president again. It's like so emotionally devastating. And like, obviously, I'm not kidding. Obviously, Barack Obama's not going to run for president because he's a first term senator from Illinois. And so I went in and I interviewed and he didn't really like me at first. I could tell hmm. he was like hesitant. He was like back in his chair. And then Pete Rouse, who is one of my great mentors, I met with him after and he said, look, This'll be great. You and me and Gibbs, John Favreau, like the gangs, cause John and I had worked together on the Kerry campaign. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it'll be great. And I said, well, all right. But then I didn't hear anything. And then right before Christmas in 2004, my phone rang and I didn't recognize the number. I listened to the message and it was Barack Obama. And he's like, Hey, Alyssa. How do you say – how do you feel about – we should do this. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was – and then I started like two weeks later. I did the schedule. I did some of the political stuff. And then eventually I left the Senate office and became the political director at the political action committee. Okay. What does that mean? So actually it was probably the most fun job I ever had. So I left the Senate and Obama's PAC was called the Hope Fund. And the main mission of it when they launched it was to take a lot of kids who otherwise wouldn't necessarily be educated into the political process, mm-hmm. teach them how to be field organizers, community organizers, and bring them in. And um, so I got down there and it was 2006, which I'm sure most people may not remember. There was a huge Democratic tidal wave of Democratic candidates that won that fall. Mm-hmm. But Barack Obama's book, The uh, audacity of Hope had just come out. Such a he went great to, title! Yeah, he went to Africa. He did the big trip to Africa, and when he came back, it was my job to figure out who he was going to campaign on behalf of, who we were going to give money to. And it was just like, one you're so powerful, you're just like, we're going to write a twenty seven hundred dollars, twenty three hundred dollars check to this person. Mm-hmm. And I still remember the people who didn't thank us for our checks. Ooh. yeah, John Barrow. Um, John, I'm telling you, I don't even think he's in Congress anymore. We're taking our money back. He didn't thank us. <laughs> but so we did. So we went all around. He was t- campaigning for candidates. And I was just, that was what I did. I, I made all those decisions with like Robert and Pete and where they go. And Reggie Love was my deputy political Director, a lot of people know Reggie because he was in the White House. He was I feel like I'm president. hearing someone
1: talk about sports. I'm so out of like that's I'm, no, but you're educating me. There, are,
2: you know what? But that's what we're all here for. I
1: know. And so you mentioned, you know, politics can be intimidating. Yeah, and and they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to someone who is? kind of just feeling out what politics means for them in their 20s, mm-hmm. how they can use politics to to make change in the world. This is a really big question. But I just think in general, like,
2: what is the importance of politics just for our listeners? Oh, my God. That's so big. That's deep. Um So here's what I would say. I think that for everybody, if you think about what's important to you, there's like one issue, right? Whether it's like reproductive rights, whether it's getting better people on your school board, whether it's, you know, toxins in the dump down the street from your house that like, you know, when people say politics is local, that's so true. And so it doesn't mean that you being involved in politics isn't just about who you're going to support for president. It's about your neighborhood. It's about your community. It's about your school district. And so I think that, you know, one, you should just ask so many questions. You know, I think that people always think they have to have the answers. And when they don't have the answers, they're shy and they're like really reticent to get involved in something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, go to a campaign rally, go to the school board meeting, ask questions, find Mm -hmm. out because you might find there's something you're really passionate about that you didn't know because you actually you didn't know. And so that I would tell people it's to okay. just get out and ask questions. It's okay not
1: to know. I mean it's I totally, think it's really hard to get over just there's no way to know everything about all the issues and keep up with all of it. There is a way and there's no but it's you been know your what? job to do that. No, at but points. actually
2: here um, this is an amazing mentoring story. So Larry Summers from Harvard. He was treasury secretary. Okay, And um, a lot of people thought he was involved in this scandal at Harvard. People said he was really misogynistic and sexist. And so when I first met Larry, we were on the transition from the campaign to the White House, and he was meeting with uh, President-elect Obama. And I walked through a room, and he's like, excuse me, I'd like a Diet Coke. And I'm like totally exasperated. I go and I get him the Diet Coke. And I'm like, he is sexist. He asked me to get a Diet Coke. Now, hindsight, I was the only person in the room. Uh And it had nothing to do with being a woman. And so I kind of tried to check myself, as they say. And when we get to the White House, I'm sitting in this econ meeting and we're talking about the financial crisis and I was like sweating through my shirt because I was worried that like at some point Obama was going to turn to the Socratic method and just like randomly ask me a question about quantitative easing and I wouldn't know what to say (laughs) and so I'm sitting with like Tim Geithner who's treasury secretary and Larry sitting next to me who is the economic advisor to the president and all these other like super brilliant people and I have my notebook and I'm writing down all these terms that they're using that I don't understand Mm -hmm. so I could go read about them later. And Larry taps me on the shoulder and he's like, come to my office afterwards. And I was like, oh, my God, he knows I'm dumb.
0: Like, (laughs) oh, my God, he knows I'm dumb.
2: And so I go up to the office and he's like, what's that list that you have? And I was like, well, Larry, like, I don't understand everything you guys are talking about. And so I I look it up and he's like, well, why wouldn't you just come to me? I will tell you anything you need to know. And he gave me a tutorial on everything I had on my list. And I felt so smart afterwards. And he said, you know, if you knew everything I knew – what good would I be? Mm-hmm. And like, I always took that with me because I never, ever, ever get upset with anyone for asking a question. That's because, great. Because, you know, and then lo and behold, a couple of years later, I was actually interviewing candidates for the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And I was like, I still had my list of terms from that first year because you never uh, know yeah. when POTUS is going to say... Oh, you think you're so smart? Why don't you tell me what quantitative easing is? And I would have like turned to my crib sheet. Will you sheet. tell us
1: what quantitative easing? Is? I mean,
2: not articulately. I, I would need my sheet. Even is it, ma- <laughs> is it math? It's like an economic term. Okay, there you I go. I was like, yeah, it would be really random if it was math, but for some reason, it
1: sounds like math. <laughs> it I guess does, it's right? The word quantitative. And then easing sounds like some kind of a. It's like a way to help the economy. term
2: <laughs> we're, we're educating left or and right. Something I know.
1: Yeah. So. Luckily for everyone listening, I'm comfortable sounding dumb on this podcast. But you're so not, you're just admitting you don't know something. That's not yeah, being dumb. The only way to know things is by asking. Right. Or finding out for yourself. And I think so many people will sit in meetings and in meetings with me. And I'll talk about something, and I never like to drop acronyms or oh, no, 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 complicated totally. things. So I'm always listening for the least informed person in the room. Mm-hmm. But you know, when when other people do it, I'll be listening for them, and I'll raise my hand and say like Hey, can you explain like yep. what that word means for the intern who doesn't know what we're talking about right. at the company? All hand meet, meeting all hands meeting. But yeah, there's just so many people that won't raise their hand in a meeting. They'll nod and yep. they'll even laugh when other people laugh. Right. And, and they, don't, they don't get it. And that feels actually kind of mean. Like, yeah, if, I, it feels mean to like fake laugh at something that I've said or someone else has said or nod your head when you don't actually understand. Mm-hmm. I've been guilty of it. I've done it, too. You know, when you're just like, it's loud in here. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> but um yeah, at the end of the day, it's just you know, it should be celebrated when we admit to not knowing because it's just. You know, that's what we're here to do is learn. Get smarter. Yeah. So you've had a ton of internships and internships are something that a lot of our listeners have had, Mm -hmm. um, or or are having or will have and think a lot about. And it's a nebulous thing, you know, because I think some employers will, will not pay for internships. What would your advice be to get it? And then once you have
2: it, like, how do you hit it out of the park? So. I have interviewed so many people and dealt with so many interns. This is my favorite intern story of all time. When we were in the White House, you know, President would go to Wisconsin. I went to Madison and we would always work with the Wisconsin Dems at the university. And this one woman who was like, she was like the vice president of the Dems. And I said, Democrats, Democrats, sorry. Yeah. The university Democrats. (laughs) And so (laughs) I said, well, how come Debbie isn't on the list of photos for the president? And the kids who are running the event, they're like, we don't know. And so I emailed Debbie, and I'm like, I want you – I don't understand. Like, this is the third time we're coming. I want you to get a picture with the president. And she said, but I can't because when the president's on campus, that's the best day for us to register people to vote. And so I can't take time out of registering people to vote even though I'd love a picture with the president. And I actually, without applying, gave her an internship because I'm like, that's the kind of person Mm -hmm. that I want. Not only was I – Right. She got to the White House and worked so hard. She was just a total go-getter. The thing that I always tell people, your attitude matters. Like, be pleasant. Say mm-hmm. please and thank you. Totally. You know, it sounds small. Sure is like not in your vocabulary. Exactly. or Sure is like a shrug. Right. Yeah. Fine. Uh-huh. And so she was Even such you're a star. Even your welcome is like, yes, I did something for you. Right.
1: Just be like, of course. You got it. I couldn't imagine a world where I wouldn't have done this. Right? I don't want
2: sour pusses. I want Uh people who are stoked to be there. And so she was such a great intern that the vice president's office hired her, and now she is in law school. And I was just, like, so proud of her. But, like, there are those stories, right, of people that really wanted the opportunity. There's another kid that I interviewed, and he came in and explained to me why— it would be good for me to hire him, okay? And on top of it was, like, my office was in the West Wing, right near the president. And he said, you know, and what I could do is I could be, like, the liaison to all of the campaign contributors, you know, for when they want tours and stuff. And I was like, okay, we're going to stop this right here. Uh What you actually said is illegal. It shows me you have done no work whatsoever in understanding what my remit is Uh here in the West Wing. And so, like thank you, talk soon. But uh-huh. I couldn't, you know, and he ended up not getting anything, thank God. Totally. But for all the kids that want to be successful, it's like just go in with a great attitude. There's no job too small for you, mm-hmm. right? Like Do your I, research. Do your research. I get a bunch of kids who are like, what does that mean? Dude, Google it before you ask me. Oh my God, Like I know. Google
1: it. Uh-huh. If people come in and haven't read my book, right? it's just like you're coming in for a job interview. It's like a three-hour read. And there's that is- so many people who are like, um, I bought it on audiobook, but, or something. A hundred percent. So much. It's not, and it's
2: not, it feels narcissistic to be like, no, have you read my book? Not really. Cause here's my thing. I do not think I'm a celebrity. I don't think I am. I have air quotes up right now that I'm anybody. You you're about to be your own girl boss. But, up, I, but well, that's happening. <laughs> but like when they come in and they're just like, "So, I mean, how long have you been here?" And I'm like, "Did you not read the New York Times profile on me?" Uh huh. Because like, wouldn't you want to know? I always. Yeah. I mean, the person that you're talking I even boned to? up on Old Sophia over here hey. just to make sure I was like good to go today. Thank you. Like, but that's just what you do. Yeah. Because it's like a big deal coming in for me. is a big deal. I want to do a good job on your podcast. And then so how do we hit it out of the park once we get what we want? Once we get what we want, it's like don't get lazy once you get what you want. just starting. You're it's not just done. starting. And, you know, when people come in – and I don't care who you are. If you are 22 years old, you're doing some low-level shit, right? Mm-hmm. So you just got to, like, run into the low-level shit. You've just got to embrace it and oh, know right. that if I can't trust you to take my messages, answer the phone, prepare briefing books, then why am I going to – get to the point where I send you to a meeting that I can't go to, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And so I have always had male assistants. Hmm. And let me tell you, crushers. Like, really? Like, they come in, they start my – Clay, I hope you're listening, Clay. Hey, Clay. He was my friend Juliana's assistant on the Obama campaign, and she and I went to Paris for Fashion Week, and we were doing a <laughs> fundraiser with Anna Wintour. Fun. And she and I land in Paris and we had asked him to make sure that we could get into our hotel room. And God love him. We blew him up at like two o'clock in the morning his time. We're like, Clay, we can't get into the hotel room. And he was at his birthday party, but he walked outside, fixed our hotel room problem. I never forgot his good attitude. When we, it was like a Sunday morning. And then I hired him to work for me in the White House when my other assistant joined the Navy.
1: You know, at what level, because there's so many levels of assistance, someone who works with you in the White House, Mm That's
2: still not an entry-level assistant, right? No, no. It's Well, I mean, Clay was really young. I did not even know that he'd gone to Harvard until after I hired him. Wow. But he just had, you know, I know when I'm difficult. I know that I'm not perfect, and I know what my bugaboos are. So I'm very sensitive. I can be bitchy sometimes. I need someone who can roll with my moods, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm not abusive, but we all have our moods. Yeah. And we always joke that Clay could... Do a briefing book. He could sit in meetings for me. He could help me prioritize what was important and what wasn't important. But then also understood that when I was really about to pass out from hunger, that a grilled cheese was the only thing that was going to solve it. And nice. they better make it right. Yeah, with like lots of cheese and butter. Like and it I don't want melted. Ra- okay. I had that to send so it back. many times. You peel the bread open and there's it's a like, corner. And they, and they pull apart. I'm sorry. Yes. No, yes. No. And so, but that is the thing. So he knew I needed a proper melted grilled grilled cheese, not yeah. two pieces of toast with cheese in the middle. Exactly. Ew. And that that would get me back on track. And he also had to buy tampons for me once, which was oh. how I got tampons into the West Wing. Cause like no one should ever have to do that. Wait, but you can have tampons. They're allowed. They're allowed, but we didn't have them, like, in the bathroom. Oh. Right? Now we do. Oh, wow. Good. Now we do.
1: We're going to keep them there. Yeah. I'm with tampons. Yep, with tampons, Hashtag too. I'm with tampons.
2: <laughs> um,
1: you've been around such incredible leaders, and I think we have a lot of young leaders listening to this podcast. Yeah. Hi, um, Who may be hiring their first employees or who mm-hmm. may be our next president. Never know. What would you say you've witnessed the qualities of a great leader are?
2: So, qualities of a great leader... Well, people who listen, the thing that I have been spoiled by and the thing that's so hard is that whether it was John Kerry, whether it was President Obama or Secretary Clinton, like all these people who I was able to travel the world with and spend like one-on-one time with, I have never been yelled at. That's great. You know, even when I – I've also never lied about making a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like when I fucked up, I'm like, all right, so here's where we are. Do you apologize or do you just say "I, I fucked up? I say, I'm really sorry, but here's what's happened. Yeah, I think sorry is nice. You kind of have to say it, because if not, it makes it sound a little like... Like, yep, I did I this. I did it, you know? Yeah, I know. So I say sorry, and for me, watching people yell or not listen to the people who work for them, it's like, it's the respect goes both ways, mm-hmm. even though you're the boss. Totally. And so I think that that's the best leadership. Like, I can't tell you, I messed something up. So badly. I think I heard about this one. Which one? Tell me about the plane. Yes. So it was during 2006. And again, Obama's traveling all over the place for these candidates. And I'm in the Hope Fund office all by myself. And I get this email from Jordan. Hey, Jordan. And JK says, Hey, Alyss, we're at the airport and there's no plane. I'm like, No, that's impossible. And there wasn't. I booked the private plane from Denver to San Francisco for the wrong day, and it was a very expensive mistake, and I cried. I just sobbed. Mm. And How expensive? Probably 20 grand. Yeah. Uh-huh. Probably $20,000 mistake. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I was so upset, and then my phone rings, and I see it's Obama, and I just think he's going to rip me one. And he says, and some people think this sounds like infantilized, but I was sobbing, so... He said, I hear that there are some tears in the office right now. Uh And I was like, I'm so sorry. I just totally messed up. I'm totally overwhelmed. And he's like, well, I don't know why you're upset because I'm sitting on a plane like a United flight heading to San Francisco and I'm going to be there in time for the event. So don't worry about it. And he flew. He flew co- well, he always he was like a big commercial guy, but That's we cool. just couldn't get a lot of places in time without mm-hmm. the plane. Mm-hmm. But he didn't care, and they didn't. Ma- they weren't That's like, awesome. "Well, you figure this out." They were like well, when three adult great, dudes.
1: You know, when you're great most of the time, when you have an amazing track record, and this is you know how it is with me and you know the people that I work mm-hmm. with. If you screw up once in a while, it's just like, well. You know what? That shit happens. The price of doing business. Let's keep moving along. Yep. Like, exactly. Like, you know, when it seems like negligence or, you know, there's, you know. Or someone lied. Or they lie or they're obviously it's the checked the only time out. I get mad. You know, it's a disservice to mm-hmm. both people when someone's like checked out and they're like over it and they they stick around in a job. Right. Exactly. Then they don't do a good job and then.
2: They bring the morale down around them they and everything. Do. Yeah. They really do bring it's everyone a bummer. else down.
1: So I heard some story about you splitting your pants.
2: I split my skirt. You split your skirt. I split my skirt. Was there already a slit? No. So I got very (laughs) defensive about it because we were going to a fundraiser on a Friday afternoon, right? And, like, nobody – every people would, like, scatter like rats on for Friday afternoon events. Uh Nobody ever wanted to go. And so it was just me and the president and I think one other person. And we get on Marine One. We go out to Virginia – we get off the helicopter, get into the suburban, and I was like lucky I had like an armored suburban that I would travel in. But the step nice. was really high, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize it. And so we drive to the house, get out of the house. I'm walking in, and uh, Doctor Jackson, hey Ronnie, comes up to me and he's like, uh, ma'am. Uh, I think you you might have split your skirt. I'm like that's impossible. And then I felt behind me, and I hadn't just split it. I split it straight up to the zipper. Uh oh. Um, Did you have a thong on or normal panties? I mean, I had normal undies on, but I mean, it was not like it was like Haynes her way. You know, it was like summer. It was cotton. Well, so I get in and I'm like, what am I going to do? Because the skirt had like shredded. And so Ronnie and the nurse used pins and they pinned my skirt together. But the problem is when you get back on the helicopter to go back to the White House, I kind of had to like lay sideways so Mm -hmm. that I didn't split the pins. Oh, no. And also make sure I like didn't moon the president who was just like – did he know this he was, was crying he was oh crying God. with laughter everyone on the helicopter was just like cuz i was laid out like a mermaid sideways uh-huh. because i couldn't let anyone see my butt and because i didn't want to pit the pins to stick me in the butt and it was just It was one of those moments where you're like, are we really working in the White House right now? Like, is Ashton Kutcher around the corner? Am I being punked? (laughs) And I wasn't, but that's President Obama. He was just, like, some people could have been truly horrified. He He really is. This is, this is my hallmark story about Barack Obama. Okay. He knew that I was obsessed with the royals and that my oma, my grandmother, she was from Germany and all we would do is talk about royals together. And so when we went to Buckingham Palace for the Queen's 60th her jubilee, it's like her 60th year uh-huh. at the throne. Um, we have this amazing dinner party and she's there and like Colin Firth is there and like all these great British people. David Beckham was there and I had just enough British codeine cold medicine to be telling people that David Beckham like wanted to do it with me. But like this is, <laughs> this
0: is
2: what we're doing and we meet the queen and like I curtsy and everything and, but the president knows that like, that I'm dying inside. Like uh-huh. this is amazing. So the next morning we get up and we're leaving London and Reggie Love comes to my door and he's like hey boss boss wants you to come with him on the helicopter and i was like no like i sent my clothes ahead to the plane like i was in jeans mm-hmm. and he's like what will you want me to tell him you can't come to buckingham palace and i was like shit so i get in the car go to buckingham and i'm in jeans mm-hmm. waiting and outside. Is that like not allowed? No, it's like so tacky. Oh. I was like the tackiest person ever. And like all of the staff are outside from Buckingham ready to wave off, you know, as yeah, we're lifting off on Marine One. Yeah. And I'm so nervous. I'm standing behind the couch flipping through magazines. So we go out to Marine One. The president and the first lady are on the helicopter and he just looks at me and he goes, jeans. I knew that you wanted to come to Buckingham Palace and you come in jeans. Uh And I was like, I know, I just, I didn't know, I didn't know. And then he looks at me, he's like, what's in your hand? And I had accidentally taken Tatler magazine from Buckingham Palace. Do you still have it? Yeah, it's in my house somewhere. And he's like, I can't take you anywhere. Oh, my God. But that's he knew that I wanted to do it. He tried to surprise me and I was utterly unprepared. That's so cute. Yeah, that's my moment. He is cool. Yeah, he's the best. So you've talked
1: a lot about judgment. The woman who was in Madison who said, you know, the president doesn't have time for photos because we got to sign up as many people as we possibly can.
2: How do you characterize good judgment? So my judgment, I'm thoughtful, but my judgment may be better for President Obama than it is for you, Mm. right? And so sometimes your judgment is really, and what I would say is that I had good judgment for President Obama. Like I understood what was important to him and I translated that into the decisions that we were all making around the West Wing. And, you know, now I'm at Vice and that judgment is very different and like I'm rolling with it.
1: This is a whole new era for you, and so I want to talk about your role at Vice. You've been yeah. with Vice for how long? Like year and a half. How has that been? And what you're the chief operating officer. Yeah. What does that
2: mean? I'm sort of all over the place. At least the White House, I knew I was like there was you know five different departments I oversaw uh-huh. broadly. With Vice, it's just like understanding the company. And again, it was the whole reason I wanted to work there is because it was a super challenge because I didn't really know anything about media. Mm-hmm. And so I figured that I still had a little bandwidth left to learn about a totally new Oh my God, you're 40? No, but I mean like my brain my mental space. Totally. You know? Yeah. And so I I got there, I learned all about the company and just sort of went department by department and helped people to structure a little bit better, figure out the people that they were missing, Mm -hmm. you know, because like sometimes you come in from the outside and they are, I felt real kinship to Vice because they were a company that was founded by a group of people who still all work together. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, for us on in Obama land, when new people came in, we were like, you know, you always raise one eyebrow. Mm -hmm. As my friend Pfeiffer says, I'm always against them before I'm for them. That's fair. I mean, and then I'm like, oh, you're cool. And so I went into Vice and I was very much like, they're going to be suspicious of me. They're going to be like, oh, now we're big time and this this woman's here. And so I really tried to just learn what everybody did and really understand how the company functioned. And now I think I have good perspective when we hit bumps to help, you know, get us out of some ruts. Cool. So something I like to ask
1: all of our um, guests is... If you could power brunch, and you've probably done this already because no, I don't um, know. If you could power brunch with any girl boss, who would it be? My God, power brunch with any girl boss. You've done it. I'm sure
2: you've I've done. done a lot of that, but I'm trying to think of who would really like one on one, one on one, alive or dead. <gasps> Stevie Nicks. Oh, cool. You could make that happen, right? I think so. But sometimes I'm always afraid to meet my heroes. Yeah, it can be a real bummer. It can when they're just like weird or socially awkward or not cool. Or just
1: so normal. Right.
2: And you're like, like, oh, you're like oh, they oh. are just like us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, they all are. Yeah.
1: Everyone's just has like dry skin flaking off their face. And, it's true. Or you know, it's on their chin like else. right here and yeah. ingrown hair. i got two. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we do something on this podcast called Girl Boss Moments. Okay. I don't know. It's kind of like a Hallmark moment. or but, um, <laughs> Girl Boss Moment is the time of your week where you felt like you owned your life. Okay. Um, and so our listeners tweet in and Instagram in their hashtag Girl Boss moments, Okay. It's really cool. Like, I just upgraded my system to this, and now my business is hashtag Girl Boss Moment. That's awesome. Um, and so it can be business. It can be work-related. It could be I gave myself a bubble bath or, you know, I had a pizza and splurged or, you know, what it's just. I splurged a lot. I had pizza yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Alyssa, what was your girl boss moment this week?
2: My girl boss moment this week, honestly, was doing my first podcast. Cool. Yeah. I always get sort of undue anxiety when I do something new. Me too. And so this morning I woke up really early and I was like, oh, no, I hope I'm good. And now we did it. and We
1: had so much fun. I think this might have been our best podcast yet. Stop. No, seriously. Alyssa, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been such a blast. Let's do
0: it again. We will. All right. Round two. This was another episode of Girl Boss Radio. I'm Liz Carey, and I promise Sophia will be back next week, along with me to talk about your Girl Boss moments and probably most of my failures of the upcoming week. Next week's guest is Julie Greenbaum, the co founder and chief revenue officer of Fuck Cancer. So please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. Thanks also to Emily Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thanks also to the band Phases for our theme song and Joel Jarek DeGraff, who is now same animal for our interstitial jam. Talk to y'all next week. Bye.